All right, good morning. Go ahead and play those slide pictures. So I counted up 263 times we have set up and tore down in this building over the last five years. God willing, counting today, we will have eight more times that we have to do that. <laughs> that is awesome. So drywall is hung, uh, and God willing, they will have everything mudded and ready for us to start priming and painting this coming Saturday. Uh, and Scott's going to talk a little bit more about details as far as work days and things coming up. But I, let me tell you this, if we're going to get in there by Easter, if we're only there on Saturdays, it's not going to get done. <laughs> we need to be in there almost every single day working. And so I've got a list of projects that need to be done and window of when they can be done. And uh, I will give you all the information. So if you have time, not just on Saturdays, but Sundays, Mondays, Tuesdays, whatever day of the week, if you have time available and you can get over to the building, we need people that are, are skilled with painting, but we also need people that can just use a shop vac and sweep up dust. Okay, and so if everybody gets involved, we will be in there by Easter, I am sure, God willing. And so thank you so much for what you've done to get us to this point. We are, I can see the finish line. Let's get there. Let's get there. All right, open up your Bibles. Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. We, we've got a lot to cover today. Well, actually, just two verses, but there's a lot that's packed. Man, there is so much packed into these two verses. Uh, Luke chapter 3, we're going to be taking a look at verses 21 and 22. And uh, let me give you a little bit of context of what's going on here. We've been walking through the, the book of Luke together. And last week... Perry, thank you so much for, for preaching, and uh, Scott, the week before, also uh, allowed me to, to be able to focus on the building for the last couple of weeks, but uh, last week, Perry uh, shared the story of John the Baptist and his ministry, and John the Baptist, if you remember, if you were here last week, he was a very bold man, he, he was the man that was the forerunner of Jesus, preparing the way for Jesus, in fact, he was such a good preacher, they started thinking he might be the Messiah, and he crushed those ideas by saying, look, I baptize you with water, but... He who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to even untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And soon after he said that, lo and behold, who shows up on the scene to be baptized but Jesus himself? That's where we pick up in the story today. Look at chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven came and said, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. I continue, really God continues to teach me how vitally important it is to find my identity fully in Christ. Because, listen, how you view yourself, where you find your value and your worth is going to impact how you live, it's going to impact how you feel and how you interact with, with other people. In fact, they say that children... Tend to, they tend to define themselves based on how they feel their parents view them. And so if they feel like their parents think that they're worthless, if they think that their parents think that they're worthless, they're going to grow up feeling worthless. If they feel like their parents think that they're valuable, they're going to grow up feeling valuable. You see, listen closely. If you're taking notes, this would be on the final exam. The most important voices in your life 
will define your identity. The most important voices in your life will define your identity. And so when we struggle, when we're, when we're down on ourselves, when we're depressed, when, when we're just discouraged, a lot of times it's because we're listening to the wrong voices. I mean, think about all the voices that are, that are out there vying for your attention. You've got voices from your past. Maybe, maybe you come in here today and you're struggling with voices from the past that are saying, look, you're never going to amount to anything. Or, or maybe you've heard from the past that, look, you're never going to change. I can't imagine all the things that you've done. I mean, you're not really any different. Why would God love somebody like you? Maybe those are the voices that you're hearing constantly. Maybe you hear Satan whispering and tempting you falsely making promises and then accusing you when you fall into temptation, always condemning you. Maybe you hear voices of self-doubt and fear, stirring up worry and uncertainty about the future. Often we hear these voices through social media. We, we look at Facebook, I mean Facebook, and we see all these people's lives that they, they portray these perfect lives and we compare ourselves to them and we see how many likes they get compared to what we get and we think, gosh, I'm not going to be, I'm not worth anything. I'm never going to amount to anything. These, these voices, they steal our joy and they steal our ability to be able to minister to others because they tend to define who we are. We view ourselves through the voices that we listen to about ourselves. And so the voices you listen to have a profound impact on your life for good or for bad. And so wouldn't it be nice if we would have an audible voice from God telling us who we were and how valuable we were. That's exactly what happens to Jesus in this moment. He hears an audible voice from his heavenly father and doesn't just say who he is, but he also says, look, I delight in you. I am well pleased in you. See, our text this morning is really just a glimpse of the relationship that the Trinity has. You see the whole Trinity here in this picture. You see the, the Spirit coming down. You see the, uh, the Father speaking audibly. You see Jesus being baptized. And if you listen closely, you're not going to just hear the intimate relationship between the Father and the Son. You're also going to hear that voice calling out to you. And my prayer is that through the Spirit, all the other voices would be drowned out this morning and we would hear his voice crying out to us telling us how valuable we are in his eyes and so we're going to dig into this text there's some treasures in there uh, this is kind of where we're going I'm, I'm going to explain the text we're going to walk through it and then I'm going to share some implications for our own lives so go back to verse 21 now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying the heavens were open now it's interesting that Luke just kind of skims over the baptism of Jesus here. I mean, this is a guy, we've been talking about Luke as being this detailed guy. He's a historian. He, he shares all sorts of details that no other gospel writer writes about. But here, he just kind of skips over the baptism of Jesus. He just kind of mentions it. And, and it doesn't really say why he was baptized. He just says, look, after everybody else was baptized and Jesus was baptized, then the heavens opened. I think this is what's happening here. Luke is, first of all, he's trying to show a transition between the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. Okay, job, uh, John the Baptist, your job is done. Now it's time to focus on Jesus. And what matters most is not why he was baptized, but what happened afterwards. He focuses on the heavens opening and this voice coming out of the heavens. But if you're like me, you're probably still wondering, 
Okay, why was Jesus baptized? If it, last week we learned that John the Baptist was baptizing people. It was a, repent, a baptism of repentance. Well, Jesus never sinned. The Bible makes it very clear that Jesus never sinned. He had no reason to repent. And so why would he have to get baptized? Luke doesn't answer that, but the good thing is Matthew does. Okay, so if you flip over, if you want to, you can go over to Matthew chapter 3. It's verses 14 and 15. And when Jesus shows up on the, sh- on the scene to be baptized, John actually says, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't need to baptize you. You need to be baptizing me, Jesus. And Jesus' response is interesting. He says this. He says this to John. He says, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does he mean by that? And so Jesus is saying that, look, it, it is the right thing to do for me to be baptized in this moment. You see, he wanted to affirm what John the Baptist was doing. And in allowing John the Baptist to to baptize him, he was identifying himself with sinners who wanted to do the right thing and repent of their sins, to turn from their sins. He didn't need to be baptized, but he was doing it as as an example. And he was also trying to communicate something significant. And John the Baptist actually preached about this last week. We talked about this. He, John the Baptist said, look, it's not your heritage. Just because you're a Jew, that doesn't mean you're saved. And baptism is a great symbol that, look, to be saved, it's not about who's your mom and dad. It's not about how good you are. It's about repenting of your sins and being connected and united to Jesus and being raised to a new life. That's what baptism symbolizes. It's a great symbol of a new birth that's happening inside of you when you trust in Christ. And so he's, he's saying, look, this is what salvation is about. And listen, if you've never been baptized as a believer, I would encourage you, don't wait. Come talk to myself. Come talk to Scott. We would love to explain it more and, and, and why it's important. You don't do it for salvation. It doesn't save you. There's no magic in the water. But we, we're baptized as believers out of obedience to God because we want to go public with our faith and say, look, I am all in. And I recognize that because I trust in Christ, I have, my old life has been buried with him and I've been risen to new life. There's great symbolism in baptism and it's a great celebration for us as, as Christians. It's a way to tell the world that, look, I'm raised to new life with Christ. So back to our story. Next, Luke mentions that the occasion of the heavens opening up was while Jesus was praying. Now, that's one of the details that only Luke mentions. None of the other gospel writers mention that. And if we, as we go forward in the book of Luke, you're going to notice that Luke loves to talk about the prayer life of Jesus. And what you're going to notice is that really at every turning point of Jesus' life, he's praying at his baptism, when he selects the 12 apostles, at Peter's confession, at the transfiguration, uh, at in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the cross. He goes into seclusion often. Sometimes he'll pray all night long. The point, of course, is it's important to pray, especially at those turning points in your life. And as I think about the life of Mercy Hill, I mean, is there a more important time for us to be on our knees than right now as we are entering into a season of great transition? Right now, we need to be in prayer more than we're at the building. That's for sure. We need to be fasting and, and walking the, the community and praying for, for the lost here in this community. We need to pray that we can get everything accomplished that needs to happen so that we can get into the building, that our energy would be there, that our focus would be there. 
that we would continue to grow in compassion for our, our community. Back to the story again. Jesus prays and the heavens open. I, I imagine this was a pretty dramatic scene. I picture that there's some clouds there and God just reaches with these big hands down and parts the clouds and this huge beam of light comes down like a spotlight on Jesus. And then we look at verse 22 when we read, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now this is one of the few times in Scripture that we see an audible, or we, we're reading about an audible voice from God. It doesn't happen very often. This is also one of the few times that we see all three persons of the Trinity. And if you're new to, to the faith uh, and maybe confused about the Trinity, well, join the club, first of all. Trinity is not easy for anybody to understand, but it's essentially this. It's essentially that God is, there's one God, but there are three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So one God, three persons. And so we have a picture of all three persons interacting together in this scene. One question, though, is why did the Holy Spirit manifest himself as a dove? Why did he descend as, I mean, he could have descended as a powerful horse or a, or a lion, or it could have been like a ball of fire that came down on Jesus. Why did he choose a dove? A few weeks ago, we talked about doves. They were a poor person's sacrifice in the temple. Why would he come as a dove? Well, we get an answer actually back in the Old Testament. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4 is a, is a really significant text because it really echoes what God the Father says here after the baptism. Let me read it to you. This is Isaiah, God speaking through Isaiah. Behold, my servant, talking about Jesus, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burned wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not fail or be discouraged till it has established or till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Now the, the beauty of this picture is that he has the power to bring forth justice to the nations. But he will not use it to break a bruised reed or quench a dimly burned wick. In other words, he will be tender and weak, failing. He'll be like a dove, meek, tender. Jesus would say it this way. He'd say, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest for I am meek and lowly. In other words, I have a spirit like a dove. Well, next we, we hear the audible voice of God saying, you are my beloved child, my beloved son, with whom I'm, I am well pleased. And that's the main point of this passage. Luke is trying to get across that, that, look, you can trust Jesus. You can have certainty in what Jesus says because there was God the Father spoke audibly and said, look, this is my son. Listen to him. You can have certainty about Jesus because of this. So another question we should ask is, why is Jesus so pleasing to the Father. And I'm sure there are numerous reasons. We're not going to be able to cover them all this morning, but there's three that I want to highlight that I see in Scripture. Number one, they share the same glory. There's one other place in Scripture where God uses the same language. It's at the transfiguration. 
Okay, in Matthew 17, you can take a look at it if you want. Uh, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain, and in an instant, Jesus is transformed, and it says that his face shone like the sun, got so bright it was like looking at the sun. He transformed in that, in that moment. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and the voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Same language. I've had the opportunity a few times to, to go vacation on the East Coast. And one of my favorite memories is waking up early and going to the beach and watching the sunrise come up over the horizon of the ocean. And it starts off as just like a little red dot, and it grows pretty quickly to like a, a fiery sliver until it, just a few moments later, it's going to this big orange ball. And as it gets higher and higher, it just gets brighter and brighter until the point you just can't look at it anymore unless you want to go blind. It only takes a few moments. And I think about this scene at the transfiguration, and I, I mean, I can only look at the rising sun for a few moments, but who, who can stand to look at the, the glory of the sun for all of eternity? It's God the Father. He looks at his son, and he sees his own glory being reflected back to him, and he is greatly pleased because of that. They, he's pleased in Jesus because they share the same glory. Number two, he was pleased with his son's willingness to sacrifice. For the last 30 years, he has spent very humble circumstances. He's been with a very poor family. Mary and Joseph were not rich. He was raised in Nazareth, really secluded from everybody else. And he, he went from sitting on the throne in heaven to being a carpenter, working with, with wood and making things here on earth. And, and God the Father looks at him and he looks into the future and he recognizes that the reason that Jesus came in the first place is to be able to die for a rebellious people to take on their sins and, and pay the penalty that they deserve. And that pleases the Father. Jesus' willingness to sacrifice pleases the Father. And then third, I believe he was pleased because of his son's obedience. Jesus only ever did what the Father willed. Even when Jesus looked at his coming fate on the cross, he said, not my will, but your will be done. And this pleased the Father. His obedience pleased the Father. God the Father's love and delight in his Son is passionate and it is infinite. Their relationship is totally unique. There's only one who is begotten, not made, one eternal son. They share a bond that is perfect, perfectly unified and intimate. Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, Jesus says, look, nobody really knows the father except for the son, and nobody knows the son except for the father. There's an unparalleled affection that they have towards one another. Their enthusiasm for one another, it never loses its fervor. The way that they honor one another, it never ebbs and flows. God is not moody like us. They never get tired of loving one another and treasuring one another. They never run out of things to talk about. For all of eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have enjoyed this relationship. And we get a glimpse at it here in the scriptures today. C.S. Lewis, he put it this way. He's talking about the relationship between the Trinity. And he says this, God is a dynamic pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irrelevant, I love this, a kind of dance. I love that picture of the Trinity. 
And here at the baptism, we get a, a glimpse of the Trinity dancing together. And this has huge, huge implications for you and me today. If you notice, immediately after the baptism, in the, go back to Luke in the text, what happens? Luke gives this genealogy of, of Jesus, which is really interesting. And I, I really had to wrestle with this this week. Why in the world did Luke put the genealogy here? Why is it placed here? Matthew places the genealogy of Jesus at the very beginning of his gospel. That makes more sense, right? Why would Luke put the genealogy here, right after the baptism? And as a side note, if you've studied the gospels, you might have noticed that there's a pretty big difference between the genealogy of Matthew and the genealogy of Luke. And uh, scholars debate why that is. I, I think more than likely, the most probable reason is that Matthew is tracing the genealogy back through Joseph, while Luke is giving us the genealogy back through Mary. But what, what's unique about Luke's genealogy is that it goes all the way back to God. No other genealogy in all Scripture does that. Look at verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. What's he doing there? I think it's this. Luke wants us to understand that Adam is also a son of God in the sense that all humans are sons of God. All humans are made in the image of God, designed to reflect the glory of God. We were all made, in a sense, to enter into that dance with the Trinity as part of God's family. Now, sin, unfortunately, has crashed the dance party. Sin, in a sense, is us thinking that we can dance better on our own than we could with God. Sin is saying, look, I don't need God to find joy and satisfaction. I can do it my way. But what happens is we end up kind of dancing like Napoleon Dynamite, right, where you're just kind of awkward and alone. And ultimately, it leads to no dancing. I, I guarantee there is no dancing in hell. But Jesus invites us back to the dance, he invites us into the dance of the Trinity. Jesus invites us to turn from being children of wrath to being children of God because of his righteousness. In John 17, this is the, the high priestly prayer. This is right before the crucifixion. John is praying to his heavenly father. And at the beginning of the prayer, you kind of get a sense of the dance that's going on between him and his, his father. Let me read the beginning of it. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see the dance that's going on there? We're going to share the same glory, and I can't wait to get back to the ballroom to dance with you, is what he's saying. Then at the end of the prayer, he says something that is extremely profound and meaningful for us. He says this in verse 26, I made known to them, Jesus says, I made known to them, talking about his disciples, your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. He's inviting us to dance with the Trinity. 
C.S. Lewis, he says, the only way for us to experience true happiness and joy is by us entering, entering into that dance with the triune God. He goes on to say this. I love this quote. He says, good things as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. You want to be warm, you must stand near a fire. If you want to be wet, you must get in the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are a great fountain of energy spurting up out of the very center of reality. If you're close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? But once separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? The Apostle Paul, he describes how this happens for us. Galatians chapter 4, probably one of the most important passages in in all of Scripture. You've, You've heard it earlier today. The Apostle Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that's us, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, which means daddy, father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So God the Father sent his son to redeem us so that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, he made it possible for us to enter into the dance permanently. When he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, he purchased your ticket to the dance. When you trust in him, when you, when you accept that ticket from him, you're adopted into his family. And to be adopted as a child of God, it's, it gives you the ability, like Jesus, to say, Abba, Daddy, Father. And so when the heavens opened after the baptism of Jesus, we don't just get a glimpse of how the Father delights in Jesus, we get a glimpse of how the Father delights in all of his children. And if you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, God the Father doesn't just forgive your sins. Listen to me, when you've been redeemed by the blood, he does not just forgive you, he looks at you and he says, you are mine, you are my child, and I am well pleased. Not because of anything you've done or haven't done, but because you've trusted in my son Jesus. And this means you will receive an inheritance of eternal life, that you will enter into the presence of the Lord and dance with him forever. It means that when you're adopted, that, that you're valued, that you belong, that, that you have a family. And all of those other voices are just lies. And it's not because of anything you've done that's good, but simply because you're his child. You're a blood-bought child. And God valued you high enough that he was willing to send his own son to die for you, to absorb the wrath that you deserve. You may feel, you come in here today and you just kind of feel awkward. You don't feel like you really fit in. You don't feel like you have anything in common with these other people that are at church. But the reality is that, look, if you, you've been bought with the blood of Christ, you have something in common with, with every other believer. And you have a bond that is potential there that it could be stronger than any biological family member that you've ever had. 
because you've trusted in Christ and you're part of his family and you can call one another brothers and sisters. And because you're a child of his, you can have assurance your salvation is not based on your works or, or on your heritage. Your salvation is based on your adoption. And there's no such language in the Bible that says that you can ever be unadopted. It just doesn't exist. The Spirit seals you as His child. And so listen to the voice of God. If you've repented of your sins, if you've trusted in Christ as, as Savior and Lord, God says to you, you're my child. Let that voice drown out all the other voices. Let that voice define you and shape you. This leads us to our response. What, what do we do about this? Uh, the famous, his famous book, Knowing God, John J.I. Packer, he writes, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Pretty powerful statement. If you're an adopted child of God, the longer you dance with the Trinity, the more you're going to look like God. The more you're going to look like your heavenly father. I know our adopted children, the longer they're with us, the more they, they act like us, the more they, they dress like us, the more they talk like us, for good and for bad, we naturally shape them into our image. Uh, I know Tasha and Patrick, I don't know how they did it, they found a child that looks exactly like Patrick from the womb. That's not normal. But the longer you're around your adopted father, the father who's adopted you, the more you're going to be like them. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 14 and 15. For all who are led by the Spirit of God. In other words, for all those who dance with the Spirit, there, there's got to be somebody who's leading the dance, right? For all, all those who have been led by the Spirit, dancing with the Spirit, you are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so my challenge to you and my challenge to me today is that we would be led by the Spirit, that we would dance with the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that awakens us to the significance of the gospel. But it's also the Spirit of God that leads us away from fear to the joyful embrace of our Heavenly Father. It's the Spirit of God that transforms us in, into His image, and He does this through the normal means of grace. And what I mean by that, the normal things we do as Christians to discipline ourselves, to, to pray and to read Scripture and study and to fellowship with other believers, to, to worship and to meditate on Scripture, to commune with Him, to serve others. And I know for me, as I've read this and I've wrestled with this, one of the things that's really been a focus of my heart over the last few days is, gosh, how important it is for me to rid out everything in my life that fuels my selfishness. And I've seen this like with my, with my boys especially, that the more that they're in front of a screen playing video games, that just fuels their selfishness. And I'm not saying we should get rid of all video games or you should never play, but I, I've seen that because what they're doing when they're looking at that video game, what are they focused on? 
themselves. And it's instant gratification over and over and over. They're getting rewarded after every little move they make. And I notice it with myself as I look at social media or my phone too much. It just feeds the fire of selfishness. And I, I was reminded of um, listening to, um, who's the financial guru? Dave, Dave Ramsey. And uh, Dave Ramsey, he talks about getting rid of debt. And to get rid of debt, if you really want to get rid of debt, what do you do? You have to have this intensity, this gazelle type of intensity, right? Where, and if you've listened to him, you've heard him talk about this, that a gazelle, it, it, they're not as fast as a cheetah, okay? But they, can, they don't have to be the lunch of that cheetah, okay? Because they know that a cheetah can only run in a straight line really fast. But a gazelle can... They can bob and weave and get away from the cheetah, if they've got, but they've got to have this intensity as they're like running away from a cheetah. And so you, to get out of debt, you have to have that kind of intensity like you're running away from a cheetah. Well, I think it, that same principle applies to our life when it comes to selfishness. There is so many things in this world that fuel our selfishness. What if we had that same kind of gazelle-like intensity to get rid of everything in our life that fuels our selfishness? Whether that's a, a phone or a video game, or shopping, or, or looking at inappropriate stuff on the, uh, online, or whatever it is, those things, you, you can probably think of a number of things that fuel your selfishness right now. What if we had that gazelle-like intensity? I would challenge you this week, just take one, one thing that you know feeds your selfishness and try to eliminate it. Like the, the debt snowball, right? Just take one thing and work on that this week. And as you do that, you're going to be dancing with the Trinity. As you get rid of the selfishness and you, and you start sacrificing, you foster things that, that cause you to be like Christ, to, to sacrifice more. You're going to enter into this, this dance and you're going to enjoy the Trinity. And as you enjoy the Trinity and as you spend time in that dance, what's going to happen is the joy of the Trinity is going to rub off on you and then ultimately it's going to pour out of you. Uh, a couple of our missional communities, they're going through a training on how to share the gospel through three circles. It's just a, it's a technique to be able to explain the gospel clearly. This is what you're doing. You're, you're teaching people how to dance. That's what you're doing as you're sharing the gospel with them. Most of the people are blinded to the fact that there is a God who loves them and values them and is constantly in a perfect, united relationship with one another. And if we would just get near it, it'll rub off on us too. Let's pray that God would help us do that. Father, thank you so much for your word, reminding us of the joy that you have in yourself. That you love one another. And I pray that our hearts would be drawn to the dance and that it would cause our souls, no matter what the circumstances are in our lives right now, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how little sleep we're getting because of our, our kids waking up in the middle of the night, no matter how difficult it is dealing with relationships and, and family, that even in the midst of all of that, that we would look to you and we would see the joy you have for one another and we would rejoice because you treasure us also. I pray, that, I pray that we wouldn't just rejoice in the pleasure you take in us, but we would rejoice in you personally for who you are. And we would see your glory and we'd be amazed. I pray that you would drown out all the other voices and we would hear you 
saying, saying to us, you're my precious child, and you I'm well pleased. For your glory, Lord, we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.